So tonight we're going to be looking at John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, just the one verse, uh, verse 10. Very familiar scripture, of course. Uh, verse 10 of John 10. Uh, Jesus speaking said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now in order to understand the impact of what Jesus was really saying here, we must ask ourselves the question, why did he say this? And to whom did he say this? And when did he say this? What was the occasion of it? Who was he talking about? Who was he talking to? Chapter 9 gives us the answer to that. Because in chapter 9, Jesus healed the man who was born blind. And after healing the man who was born blind, uh, the Pharisees took great umbrage. And they took great umbrage at that not even so much because the man was healed, but because he was healed on the Sabbath day. You remember, we don't read it, but you remember how that Jesus, when he met this man who was born blind, that he spat on the earth and made a couple of little mud pies, put it in the man's eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man went and washed and came back seeing. Now to those Pharisees, because this was on the Sabbath day, that act of Jesus, and he deliberately did it to break their petty, ridiculous rules that they had about the Sabbath. He deliberately spat on the ground, made the mud pies, put them in the man's eyes because that, in their eyes, constituted work on the Sabbath day. And so, in chapter 10, Jesus calls those scribes and the Pharisees, he calls them uh, thieves and robbers, Another place he called them hirelings, only in it for the job, but no heart and passion for the people. And so this attitude of the Pharisees towards this miracle of the healing of the blind man shows their total unfitness uh, to be the true shepherds of Israel. They were unfit for purpose. But he himself in chapter 10 then goes on to call himself the good shepherd, the true and the genuine shepherd. Now, while he calls them in chapter 10, verse 1, he calls them thieves and robbers. In verse 10, he tells us very clearly who is energizing them. The thief that we know, of course, is Satan. The Bible has many names for Satan, all of them denoting his nature. We know that he's called the serpent, and the dragon, and the slander, and the accuser, and the adversary, murderer, liar, so many names. But here in chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus simply labels him a thief. And he is the thief of all thieves. He is the father of all thieves. And he's an expert thief, professional thief. 
And as a thief, Jesus says, he came to do three things, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The word he uses for steal is klepto. Klepto is where we get kleptomaniac from. And you know that a kleptomaniac is someone who just cannot stop stealing. They couldn't even if they tried. It's their very nature. It's their want. <laughs> it's their disposition to steal. Give them half a chance. They will steal. And they will steal of anybody for any reason. Not because they need it, but because they are a thief. And Jesus describes Satan as the thief, as the kleptomaniac who cannot stop himself. It's his very nature to steal. He wants to steal. He will steal. He does steal because that's who he is. Then he said he comes not just to steal, but to kill. Thuo. Interesting word, thuo. It means to offer up as an animal to sacrifice. To be like a sacrificial offering. We'll put this together in a moment. And then to destroy, he said, W. Vine, he says of this, the idea is not of extinction, but of loss and ruin. Not loss of being, but loss of well-being. So when it says destroy here, it doesn't mean to annihilate, but it means to destroy the well-being of someone. To destroy the good life that they have. To pull it to pieces. To render it ineffective. To ruin it, to bring loss to it. And so we could say, putting all that together, that Satan the thief, he wants to take us God's sheep. And he wants to steal from us, rob from us, bring loss and ruin, reduce us, victimize us, make us as a prey on an altar of sacrifice. Not a pretty picture, is it? To reduce us to nothing. So that's what Satan wants to do. And you are his number one target, in case you didn't know. But you and I, children of the Lord, are his number one target. Why? Because the Bible says that you have treasures in earthen vessels, that we have the riches of God's grace within us. In fact, this is the exceeding riches that God has put heavenly deposits within you. That's what he wants to steal out of our lives. But thank God we have a good shepherd. A good shepherd who will even, and who has laid down his very life for the sheep. Not a hireling when trouble comes who will run but one who will protect, who will rescue, and who will save. What kind of things then is the thief interested in stealing from you? What valuables do you possess? Well, there are many, but just a few tonight. 
First of all, and this is relating to the context of what we've been talking about, first of all, your liberty in Christ. Your liberty in Christ. Now, the Pharisees thought more of Israel's Sabbath than they did of Israel's sheep. And that story proves that. They were long on rules and regulations, but they were very short on love. They tithed their mint, their cumin. They prayed long prayers in the marketplace to be seen of men. They washed their cups and their pots and their plates, but there was very little compassion, very little love, very little forgiveness. They were legalists in every sense of the word. There was no liberty with them, just legalism, just rules and regulations that must be obeyed. And as if the Ten Commandments wasn't enough, they had hundreds of other commandments that man made, that they made, to hem in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said they put burdens on men that not even they could carry. And they loaded men with burdens that even God didn't put upon them. And we see that with the man born blind. Their only concern was that one of their little rules had been broken. Should have been rejoicing that the man was healed. A man blind from birth healed. Great cause for rejoicing. But they couldn't even be happy about it because it was done on the Sabbath day. And of course they hated Christ with a passion. Do you know what they did with that poor man? If you read the story, it's an amazing story. In the end, they kicked him out of church. They kicked him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. <laughs> Remember in Luke chapter 13, it tells us a story there about the The woman in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, was bent over and could no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you're loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered and said to him, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound Think of it, 18 years she's been bound, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. When he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Legalists. No joy, no gladness of heart, no rejoicing with those who were healed, fault-finding because it was the Sabbath. Remember the woman that was taken in adultery? 
what a shameful episode and how they trailed her through the city and into the temple and threw her in front of everybody at the master's feet with no thought of the poor woman other than to condemn. That's religiosity. That's legalism. But thank God you and I as believers have liberty, not legalism. We have liberty, and we have the liberty of the marvelous grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What a marvelous thing the liberty in Christ is. Thank God that we do not have to keep all of those rules and regulations and rituals of the Old Testament because they were a burden too great to bear. Thank God for the freedom that is in the liberty and grace in Christ Jesus. Now, Galatians 5 and 1, Paul said to the church at Galatia, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now why did he say that? He says, stand fast. Take your stand in the liberty that you've got in Christ. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Because teachers had come into this Galatian church. And then what they were teaching was this, that in order to be a true believer, you've got to mix the Old Testament laws with this New Testament grace, as it were. And Paul says, no. No, he says, no. He says, don't be caught up in that bondage again. You're free from it. Stay free from it. Enjoy the liberty that is in Christ. Stand fast in the liberty that is in Christ. These Judaizers, as they were called, were dragging them back again into all of those old rites and rituals and all of those old laws that held them in bondage for years. He says, you're free from it. Stay free from it. Enjoy the liberty that is in Christ. And that's wonderful, isn't it? And we can say amen to all of that. However, although it is great news that we're under grace, not under law, we also must be careful that we don't use our liberty as license. And this is why Paul said in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, you see, Satan is an extremist. He wants you to go to one extreme or the other extreme. And once we come into the liberty of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, once we come into the liberty of that and we realize that we're not under that old law, that's wonderful. But does that mean that we can do whatever we like because we're in grace, not under the law? Paul says, God forbid. God forbid, he says, we do that. And don't use our liberty and abuse it. This is what he's saying to the church at Galatia, not as an opportunity for the flesh. At any rights to Titus, 
chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. For the grace of God teaching us. So the grace of God teaches us some things. This is what it teaches us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So in other words, the grace of God, even though it liberates us from all of the bondage of the Old Testament laws and rituals and rites and so forth, yet it teaches us in this liberty of the gospel to live righteously, to live holy, to live soberly, to deny ungodliness. In other words, to say no to certain things like worldly lusts and so forth. So in other words, grace is meant to give us the power to live a more godly life and a less ungodly life. Did you get that? The reason why I'm saying this is because there's a feeling goes about very often that once you are free in Christ, that you're free to do whatever you please, and you're not. You're not. There's much talk today about having the liberty to do this or to do that. In fact, there are churches today, and I've heard about them. The leadership will say, it's not a problem if you go out and you have your wee drink. Not a problem. It's not a problem if you go out and you do your partying. It's not a problem. Because we're free, you see. We're not legalists in this church. We're free. It is a problem. That's a big problem. You say, forget the rules, forget the regulations. So we come to church on Sunday and we sing the songs of Zion, we put up our hands, we praise God, and then on Saturday we live whatever way we like because we're in grace. Uh uh. It's not what the Bible teaches, certainly not what Paul taught. I'll tell you what grace does grace gives you the liberty not to do things like that. It gives you the liberty not to do it. And just because others are doing it doesn't mean we have to do it. We have the liberty not to do it. A local Presbyterian minister in this town, let me give you an example. Conducted a funeral recently for a young man in this town who died of alcoholism. And he said at the funeral service, I was there, I heard him say it, while he was talking to this young man in hospital, he said to him, he says, do you know why I don't drink? No, he says, why? He says, because if I did, I might like it. If I took it, I might like it. And if I liked it, I may want more of it. And therein lies the danger, isn't it? I'm saying to you from this pulpit tonight that it may upset somebody, I don't know, it may upset a lot of folk, but I am saying to you tonight, don't touch it. Don't touch it. 
No man ever set out to be an alcoholic. No man. It wasn't their aim in life. My brother-in-law, when he was 16 years old, he stood in the high field, the sweat was blinding him. The man that owned the high field came out, gave him a glass of beer, and he says, I took it. First glass of beer ever took my life. He says, little did I know, he says, I would end up dying in an alcoholic's bed of alcohol poisoning because of that one drink. He says, I didn't know I was like that. He didn't know I was like that. Nobody knew. But he says, I, I found out when I took that one drink, he says, I couldn't stop. I liked it. And I wanted more of it and more of it and more of it. He was dying on his bed and God saved him, raised him up and he became a great preacher and a pastor in England for years. But he says, it started with that one. Let me tell you, I think in this country that we live in, that has got the reputation all over the world of being the biggest drinkers and boozers in the whole face of the earth. You go into Disneyland, Florida, and you drive through that wee thing, it's a, it's a, it's a small world, and they have all these wee puppets all singing their, their little tunes, all the nations of the world. You come to Ireland, they're fighting and drinking. True, you've seen it, you've been there, you've seen it. That's the stereotype of this country. You know what? Grace gives me the liberty not to do it. And even if I could do it, even if I could do it, I'm not going to do it because I may stumble, stumble somebody else. I may stumble some young believer and have them go down the wrong path and they look at me and say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I'm not going to do it. Even if I wanted to, I wouldn't do it. Because I don't want anybody saying about me, you know, see it Spurgeon just to smoke cigars. Did you ever know that? He used to smoke cigars. That was the time, of course, nobody knew about, you know, cancer coming out of cigarettes, smoking all. He used to smoke big cigars. He never thought anything about it. Didn't have any conscience about it. And then one time, a particular firm who made cigars, they decided to advertise these cigars as cigars that C.H. Spurgeon smokes. They never took another one after that day. <laughs> no. Nah. So he felt free to do it, but he didn't feel he could stumble anybody else and didn't. See, Paul says, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. If there ever was an age that Christians should live righteously and soberly, I think it's this present age. Way over in 1 John chapter 2, John puts it this way, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now I realize if I just let anything go or say nothing and just everybody just do whatever they like, you probably get a lot more people in here. But one day I'll stand before the bar of God and be responsible for what I say from this pulpit. And I'm not going to say anything that's going to stumble any believer, much less the unsaved. 
And so the thief will either go to one extreme or the other. He'll either try to steal our liberty in Christ and make us to become a legalist like the Pharisees, or if he can't do that, to get us to abuse our liberty in Christ. And just say, well, anything goes. doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't condemn it, so it doesn't really matter. Just do it anyway. It doesn't matter if it stumbles anybody. That's tough. I can do it, so it doesn't matter if they can do it or not. Tough. Paul says, don't do that with your brother for whom Christ died. Now, here's the thing. Following on. Tries to earn God's acceptance. Tries to merit God's favor. Now listen carefully. There's a big, big difference. Big difference between doing some things or not doing some things. Because I've been just talking about doing some things or not doing some things. There's a big difference between doing some things or not doing some things to be accepted by God. Or doing some things or not doing some things to be pleasing to God. It's a big difference. See... I want to please God. And there's lots of things I can do that will please God and bless God. The Bible says we can bless the Lord. How do we do that? Do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Read the book, see what's pleasing to God and do it, live it and do it. That will please the heart of God. But I can't do anything to make me acceptable to God. That's where grace comes in. Did you get that? Only faith in Christ as my Savior makes me acceptable to God. That's the only thing that will make me acceptable to Almighty God. The only thing, nothing else. But having been accepted by God, then I can do everything I can to be pleasing to God. I'm already accepted by God. Thank God for that. That's what grace does, makes us acceptable to God. But once we're accepted by God, then we do everything in our power to be pleasing to God. But we never forget that it's not to be acceptable to God. And that's the mistake sometimes even we as Christians do. We fall into the trap of doing things or not doing things to feel, if I do this or not do this, I'll be accepted to God. We're already accepted to God in grace. It's the only reason you're accepted at all. But if I'm going to do something or not doing something, it's to be pleasing to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Still with me? Because there's a big difference between those two. And if you fall into the trap of doing or not doing to be acceptable to God, then you'll be a legalist. And you'll be miserable trying to be that. And there'll be no joy or no fun in life at all. But knowing I'm accepted by God and then figuring out what pleases God. Is what I'm doing pleasing God? Is this God honoring? Is the company I keep, does it please God? Hey, listen, unless we're trying to reach them for Christ. If you're in a bunch of unbelievers, that's fine if you're trying to reach them for Jesus. But if your company's going to be unbelievers all the time, you're not trying to reach them for Jesus, then it's not pleasing to God. And I want to please God. And my guess is you want to please God too. You're in church tonight. You want to please God. You want to do the thing that's right. So the enemy will try to steal away your liberty that is in Christ. 
Secondly, he'll try to steal away your confidence in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of this. In verse 32, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, joyfully accepting the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance or of patience, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Do not cast away your confidence. The Greeks under Alexander the Great, who were mighty soldiers, it was said of them that they would not cast away their shields in battle. They would die first before they cast away their shields. That was their confidence. God has given us confidence in Christ. Don't cast it away. But you see, the evil one will come and try to steal your confidence in Christ. How will he do that? He'll come and he'll whisper in your ear, Ah, you see, your prayer has not been answered. He didn't get your miracle. You see, you prayed and God hasn't come through. Your loved ones are still not saved. Your dream is still unfulfilled. And the more you listen to that stuff, the less confidence you have going before God in prayer. Why don't you remind him of the prayers that God has answered? Why don't you remind him of the dreams that has been fulfilled? Why don't you remind him of all the ways that God has met your need? That gives you confidence. Don't cast your confidence away. Hebrews 10 again, in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter by the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Sometimes we need to read those verses to ourselves to get our confidence back. All of us, from time to time, has had our confidence knocked. And the devil realizing our confidence has been knocked comes in on the heels of that and he piles it on. And that's when you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, hold on. What does the Word of God say? This is what the Word says. And then you have confidence in Christ. Third thing he'll try to do is steal the Word of God out of your hearts. In Mark chapter 4, remember the parable of the soils and the seeds. Verse 3, he says, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened 
as he sowed that some fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up it was scorched and because it had no root it withered away. Some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up and increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. He said to them, He has ears to hear, let him hear. Four different soils, same seed. Four different soils, four entirely different results. But notice the first one where it was sown on the hard ground. The wayside is the hard ground where everybody has trampled upon it. You know, you see a field where they're sown all around the middle, but that bit all around the edge where the farmers and the workers has been trampling on. It's hard. Not good for sowing on. It needs to be plowed up to be sowed on. And so he said, that which was sown by the wayside, fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Now in the understanding of the parable, further down the chapter, verse 15, verse 14, it said, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. How does he do that? Satan comes immediately to the hard heart and he's able to steal that because it hasn't taken root. Now, further explanation in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that was sown in his heart. This is he that was sown by the wayside. Let's make sure that our hearts, you see, God wants to seed our hearts with the word. Seed of the incorruptible word of God. He wants to sow our hearts with the seed of the word. But he wants the soil of our hearts not to be hard, but to be broken up so that it can receive the seed. And one of the ways that we can break up that hard soil of our heart is to say, Holy Spirit, help me understand the word. When I read this word, help me to understand it. And that is why it's good for us to be in the house of God under a preacher or under a teacher and getting the word of God into our hearts and getting it so we can understand it. And that's why it would be good for every one of us to have some tools that we use, whether it's a daily devotional, whether it's a commentary, or whether it's something. Listen, we are living in a country where we have dozens of Bible bookshops, almost in every town you go into, Get something to help you to break up that hard part of your heart that you can't understand the word. So when God, the Spirit, wants to sow the seed of the word in your heart, your heart will be ready for it. And it will take root. And then the enemy can't come and steal it away. How do you think I understand the word? Do you think it just floats out of the air to me? 
I wish it did. Boy, my week would be a lot easier if that happened. I had got to understand it the way you got to understand it. All right, well, I'm called to, and I have, you afford me more time to do that because I'm full-time ministry. And that's because I have much more to do to feed you. But it's the same principle. I have got to read. I've got to ask the Holy Spirit. I've got to have commentaries. I've got to have books. I've got to find ways to do this so that when I come on Sunday, I have something to offer you. Otherwise, I wouldn't. So the enemy doesn't be able to snatch that word away out of your heart. Because once that seed is sown in your heart, then it begins to produce something. There's fruit comes out of that, isn't there? Sometimes it takes seeds longer to grow than others, but there's fruit will come out. And someday you'll be in a need and you'll be in trouble or something happened and the word of God will rise up in your heart. The fruit will be there. And it'll bring strength, it'll bring comfort, it'll bring direction, it'll bring guidance, it'll bring wisdom because you have seeded your heart with the word of God. That's why the enemy wants to steal it out of your heart. He hates your heart to be full of the word of God. And then quickly he will try to seed our faith in God. In Luke 22, Jesus speaking to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brother. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But what's he trying to get? But I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. That's what the enemy was trying to get. And Peter had faith. Remember, Peter is the one who had the revelation from the Father. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. He was the one who walked on water. This man had faith. But Satan wanted to steal that from his heart. And Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. He wants to sift you as wheat. I told you this before, but it bears repeating in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is speaking of Christ. Verse 15 of Luke 3. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Now in those days when they would gather the wheat and they had to thresh it and they maybe flailed at the sticks or they had a, an implement, a threshing instrument which made of wood and maybe spikes and, 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 and stones or, or iron spikes and all to get the separation between the, the, the chaff and the wheat. And after they would do that for a while and they would place the threshing floor in somewhere there was wind blowing 
and they would do it on a day where there was wind blowing. And then the farmer would stick in the, his, his call it a winnowing fan, it would be like a pitchfork, and he would stick it in, and he would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow through it, and it would blow the chaff away, and it would leave the wheat on the floor. And he would gather the wheat into his barn, and he'd burn the chaff. He'd separate the two. But the farmer would want the wheat left, the good stuff, and to be finished with the bad stuff, the chaff. And of course, the Holy Spirit is the wind that blows through our lives and blows out of our lives all of the, all of the chaff, all of the stuff that's useless and unproductive in our lives and leaves the good weight, the good stuff that God can work with. But Satan's the opposite. He wants to blow breeze into our lives and what he wants to do is take the wheat out and leave the chaff. That's what he wants to do. Destroy all the good stuff that is in it and burn it up and just leave the chaff, the useless stuff. And that's what he's wanting to do with Peter. And he came into Peter's life. He blew into Peter's life big time, didn't he? And what happened? Tried to blow out all of that faith out of his life. Almost succeeded. Got close to succeeding, but he didn't. Because Jesus had prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail. And even though he, the man, failed, and he failed abysmally, terribly failed, but at the end of it, he still had faith left. He still had faith to trust in Christ. And even if our faith is just like a grain of mustard seed, it's still enough, isn't it? That can get us going again, can't it? See, faith pleases God. It says that in Hebrews 11 and 6. In fact, it says without it, it's impossible to please God. Faith turns our dreams into reality. According to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is our defense, Paul says in Ephesians 6. Our shield of faith. Faith is the currency of heaven. If we're ever going to get anything from God, it's going to be by faith, isn't it? Faith is a spiritual eyesight, isn't it? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. So we see by faith. Peter said that the trial of your faith, being of much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory, glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he knew what he was talking about because his faith was tried terribly. But at the end of it, he still had some faith left. Christ restored him and he became a great leader in the church. Mighty man of God. Thief came to Job, didn't he? He stole from him in six areas. He lost his family, his sons, his daughters. His wife turned against him, said, Curse God and die. Lost his finances, all his sheep, all his oxen, all his cattle, all his servants, gone. Lost his frame. His body, sickness struck, terrible plague came upon him. So sore, he sat outside where the broken pottery was, and he'd take pieces of pottery, he would scrape his arms, and his legs, and his shoulders to relieve himself of the horrible itch and pain of those boils that was on him. The enemy came against him in his feelings. You read the book of Job, he had many questions to ask God. 
and he didn't have any answers. Lots of questions and no answers. Have you ever been in a place where you had lots of questions but you had no answers? Have you ever questioned God? Now you're looking at me very religiously looking. I have a sneaky feeling that at some point in your life you question God. Why? Why did that happen? Or why did that not happen? We've all questioned God. None more so than Job. He had a lot of questions to ask God. But you know, when it came to the point when God showed up, he put his hand to his mouth, he was dumb. <laughs> the enemy came against him in the area of his friends. Miserable counselors, he called them. <laughs> and they were too, because they were blaming him. All this has befallen you because you've got secret sin in your life. God's punishing you because you're a real sinner. You look to be a holy man. You look to be a righteous man, but underneath you're just a sinner, and God's punishing you for that. That's what they told him. Wonderful friends, eh? How would you like them to be coming around your sick bed? That would be great, wouldn't it? Church we used to go to, there was a prison officer in it. He told me, he says, there were certain ministers used to come up to the prison, and he says, whenever we saw them coming, we locked the gate, we didn't let them in. I says, why do you do that? He says, the prisoners were worse after they left them, before they went in. So it was awful. And I says, thank God they weren't all like that. He says, someone was like that. Miserable comforters. Came against them in the area of his fears. Thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. Thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. Can you identify any of those areas? See, that's where we live, isn't it? Our finances, our flesh, our family, our fears, our feelings, all those things, our friends. Any area where the enemy thinks he can steal from us, he'll do it. He'll try to come in and rob us and steal from us. But Jesus says, but I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That you may have is in the continuous sense the way it's written. That you may have it means to have and to continually possess. <laughs> to have and to continually possess. Not be robbed by the enemy. That you might have life, zoe, the life of God that is, life in, filled with vitality, real life. The God kind of life, that's what he plans for us. And that you might have it more abundantly. Parousios. It means to be above and beyond anything that is normal and regular. Extraordinary. Super abundant. I don't think we've reached that point yet. But that's what he says. He says, that's what I've come to give you. A life that is above and beyond the normal and the regular. That's extraordinary. That's super abundant. We mightn't have reached that point yet, but that's what we should be aiming for because that's what Christ has promised to give us as long as we don't let the thief steal from us. 
title of the message tonight was Watch Out, There's a Thief About. Now since that thief tried to steal my car a month ago, my driveway, I have been given to putting on the light at the back of the house and the light at the front of the house. I didn't used to bother doing that. Because I don't want to give him any advantage. Sorry I can't use my garage because it's my office. I would be very tempted to do that. I don't want to give him any advantage whatsoever. And to make sure that it's locked and to make sure the alarm is on, do everything you can. Clifford, you know, nobody's going to nick his car because he checks and he double checks and he triple checks. Isn't that right, Evelyn? And even though it's central locking, he checks the boot, he checks the four doors. If there's ten doors, he checks every single one of them. <laughs> so if that car's ever stolen, it will not be his fault. I guarantee the insurance company will pay up immediately. <laughs> Watch out, there's a thief about. Don't let him steal your goods. He wants to steal something from you, don't let him. Amen? Come on, stand with me.